Chapter Six of the Millionaire Baby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter Six. Doctor Poole. It was a direct attack, and for a minute I doubted if I had not made a mistake in making it so suddenly and without gloves. His face purpled. The veins on his forehead started out. His great form shook with an ire. That in such domineering natures as his can only find relief in a blow. But the right hand did not rise, nor did the heavy fist fall. With admirable self-restraint, he faced me for a moment without attempting either protest or denial. Then his blazing eyes cooled down, and with a sudden gesture which at once relaxed his extreme tension of nerve and muscle, he pointed toward the end of the hall. And remarked with studied politeness, "My office is below, as you know. Will you oblige me by following me there?" I feared him, for I saw that studiously as he sought to hide his impressions, he too regarded the moment as one of critical significance. But I assumed an air of perfect confidence, merely observing as I left the neighborhood of the front door and the proximity of Jupp. I have friends waiting outside for me, so you must not keep me too long. He was bending to take up the lamp from a small table near the basement stairs as I threw out these words in apparent carelessness, and the flash which shot from under his shaggy brows was thus necessarily heightened by the glare in which he stood. Yet, with all allowances made, I marked him down in my own mind as dangerous. And was correspondingly surprised when he turned on the top step of the narrow staircase I remembered so vividly from my experience I have before named, and in the mildest of accents remarked, "These stairs are a trifle treacherous. Be careful to grasp the handrail as you come down." Was the game deeper than I thought? In all my remembrance of him, I had never before seen him look benevolent, and it alarmed me. Coming as it did after the accusation I had made, I felt tempted to make a stand and demand that the interview be held then and there, for I knew his subterranean office very well, and how difficult it would be to raise a cry there which could be heard by any one outside. Still, with a muttered "Thank you," I proceeded to follow him down, only stopping once in the descent. To listen for some sound by which I might determine in which room of the many I knew to be on this floor the little one lay, on whose behalf I was incurring a possible bullet from the pistol I once saw lurking amongst bottles and corks in one of the innumerable drawers of the doctor's table, but all was still around and overhead, too still for my peace of mind, in which dreadful visions began to rise. Of a drugged or dying child, panting out its innocent breath in darkness and solitude, yet no, with those thousands to be had for the asking, any man would be a fool to injure or even seriously to frighten a child upon whose good condition they depended, much less a miser whose whole heart was fixed on money. The clock struck as I put my foot on the landing. So much can happen in twenty minutes when events crowd and the passions of men reach their boiling point. I expected to see the old man try that door, 
even to double-bolt it as in the years gone by. But he merely threw a look that way and proceeded on down the three or four steps which led into the species of basement where he had chosen to fix his office. In another moment that dim and dismal room broke upon my view under the vague light of the small and poorly trimmed lamp he carried. I saw again its musty walls covered with books, where there were shelves laden with bottles and a loose array of miscellaneous objects I had often handled, but out of which I could never make any meaning. I recognized it all and detected but few changes. But these were startling ones. The old lounge standing under the two barred windows, which I had often likened in my own mind to those of a jail, had been recovered and lying on the table which I had always regarded with a mixture of awe and apprehension, I perceived something which I had never seen there before. A Bible, with its edges torn and its leaves rumpled, as if often and eagerly handled. I was so struck by this last discovery that I stopped, staring in the doorway, looking from the scarred volume to the worn but vigorous figure drawn up in the middle of the room, with the lamp still in his hand, and his small but brilliant eyes fixed upon mine, with a certain ironical glitter in them, which gave me my first distrust of the part I had come there to play. "'We will waste no words,' said he, setting down the lamp, and seizing with his disengaged hand the long locks of his flowing beard. "'In what respect are you a messenger from Mrs. Ocumpa?' and what makes you think I have her child in this house? I found it easier to answer the last question first. I know the child is here, I replied, because my partner saw you bring her in. I have gone into the detective business since leaving you. Ah, there was an astonished edge to his smile, and I felt that I should have to make the most of that old discovery of mine if I were to hold my own with this man. "'And may I ask,' he coldly continued, "'how you have succeeded in connecting me "'with this young child's disappearance?' "'It's straight as a string,' I retorted. "'You threatened the child to its face "'in the hearing of its nurse some weeks ago, "'on a certain bridge where you stopped them, "'even set the day when the little Gwendolen "'should pass from luxury to poverty. "'Here I cast an involuntary glance about the room, where the only sign of comfort was the newly upholstered lounge. The day was the 16th, and we all know what happened on that date. If this is not plain enough, I had seen his lip curl. Allow me to add, by way of explanation, that you have seen fit to threaten Mrs. Ocumper herself with this date, for I know well the hand which wrote August 16th on the bungalow floor, and in various other places about Homewood, where her eye was likely to fall. And I let my own fall on a sort of manuscript lying open not far from the Bible, which still looked so out of place to me on this pagan-hearted old miser's table. Such chirography as yours is not to be mistaken, I completed, with a short gesture toward the disordered sheets he had left spread out to every eye. I see, a detective without doubt, did you play the detective here? The last question leaped like a shot from his lips. You have not denied the threats to which I have just called your attention, was my cautious reply. 
"'What need of that?' he retorted. "'Are you not a detective?' There was sarcasm as well as taunt in the way he uttered the last word. I was conscious of being at a loss, but put a bold front on the matter, and proceeded as if conscious of no secret misgiving. "'Can you deny as well that you have been gone two days from this place?' that during this time a doctor's buggy, drawn by a horse I should know by description, having harnessed him three times a day for two years, was seen by more than one observer in the wake of a mysterious wagon, from the interior of which a child's cry could be heard? The wagon did not drive up to this house to-night, but the buggy did, and from it you carried a child which you brought with you into this house." With a sudden downbringing of his old but powerful hand on top of the table before him, he seemed about to utter an oath or some angry invective. But again he controlled himself, and eyeing me without any show of shame or even of desire to contradict any of my assertions, he quietly declared, "'You are after that reward, I observe. Well, you won't get it. Like many others of your class, you can follow a trail.' but the insight to start right and to end in triumphant success is given only to genius. And you are not a genius. With a blush I could not control, I advanced upon him, crying, You have forestalled me. You have telegraphed or telephoned to Mr. Atwater. I have not left my house since I came in here three hours ago. Then I began, but he hushed me with a look. It is not a matter of money, he declared almost with dignity. Those who think to reap dollars from the distress which has come upon the Ocumpa family will eat ashes for their pains. Money will be spent, but none of it earned, unless you, or such as you, are hired at so much an hour to follow trails. Greatly astounded not only by the attitude he took, but by the calm and almost indifferent way in which he mentioned what I had every reason to believe to be the one burning object of his existence, I surveyed him with undisguised astonishment till another thought, growing out of the silence of the many-roomed house above us, gripped me with secret dread. And I exclaimed aloud and without any attempt at subterfuge, "'She is dead, then. The child is dead?' "'I do not know.' was his reply. The four words were uttered with undeniable gloom. "'You do not know?' I echoed, conscious that my jaw had fallen, and that I was staring at him with fright in my eyes. "'No, I wish I did. I would have given half of my small savings to know where that innocent baby is to-night.' "'Sit down,' he vehemently commanded. "'You do not understand me, I see.' You confound the old Dr. Poole with the new one. I confound nothing, I violently retorted in a strong revulsion against what I now come to look upon as the attempt of a subtle actor to turn aside my suspicions and brave out a dangerous situation by ridiculous subterfuge. I understand the miser whom I have beheld gloating over his hoard in the room above, and I understand the doctor who for money could lend himself to a fraud, the secret results of which are agitating the whole country at this moment. So, the word came with difficulty, so you did play the detective. 
even as a boy. Pity I had not recognized your talents at the time. But, no, he contradicted himself with great rapidity. I was not a redeemed soul then. I might have done you harm. I might have had more, if not worse, sins to atone for than what I have now. And with scant appearance of having noted the doubtful manner in which I received this astonishing outburst, he proceeded to cry aloud and with commanding gesture, Quit this! You have undertaken more than you can handle. You, a messenger from Mrs. Ocumpa? Never! You are but the messenger of your own cupidity, and cupidity leads to the straightest of roads directly down to hell. This you proved six long years ago. Lead me to the child I believe to be in this house, or I will proclaim aloud the pact you entered into then, a pact to which I was an involuntary witness, whose word, however, will not go for less on that account. Behind the curtain, still hanging over that old closet, I stood while his hand had seized my arm with a grip few could have proceeded under. Do you mean? The rest was a whisper in my ear. I nodded and felt that he was mine now. But the laugh which the next minute broke from his lips dashed my assurance. Oh, the ways of the world, he cried. Then in a different tone and not without reverence, Oh, the ways of God. I made no reply. For every reason I felt that the next words must come from him. It was an unexpected one. That was Dr. Poole unregenerate and more heedful of the things of this world than of those of the world to come. You have to deal with quite a different man now. It is of that very sin I am now repenting in sackcloth and ashes. I live but to expiate it. Some things have been done toward accomplishing this, but not enough. I have been played upon, used. This I will avenge. New sin is a poor apology for an old one. I scarcely heeded him. I was again straining my ears to catch a smothered sob or a frightened moan. "'What are you listening for?' he asked. "'For the sound of little Gwendolen's voice. "'It is worth fifty thousand dollars, you remember. "'Why shouldn't I listen for it? "'Besides, I have a real and uncontrollable sympathy for the child. "'I am determined to restore her to her home. "'Your blasphemous babble of a changed heart does not affect me.' You are after the larger hall than the sum offered by Mr. Ocumpa. You want some of Mrs. Ocumpa's fortune. I have suspected it from the first. I want? Little you know what I want. Then quickly, convincingly, you are strangely deceived. Little Miss Ocumpa is not here. What is that I hear, then? was the quick retort with which I hailed the sigh, unmistakably from infantile lips which now rose from some place very much nearer us than the hollow regions overhead toward which my ears had been so long turned. That, he flashed with uncontrollable passion, and if I am not mistaken, clenched his hands so violently as to bury his nails in his flesh. Would you like to see what this is? Come. And taking the lamp, he moved much to my surprise, as well as to my intense interest toward the door of the small cupboard where I myself had slept when in his service. 
that he still meditated some deviltry which would call for my full presence of mind to combat successfully, I did not in the least doubt. Yet the agitation under which I crossed the floor was more the result of an immediate anticipation of seeing, and in this place of all others in the world, the child about whom my thoughts had clung so persistently for forty-two hours, than of any result to myself in the way of injury or misfortune. Though the room was small, and my passage across it necessarily short, I had time to remember Mrs. Ocumpaugh's pitiful countenance, as I saw it gazing in agony of expectation from her window overlooking the river, and to catch again the sounds, less true and yet strangely thrilling, of Mrs. Carew's voice as she said, A tragedy at my doors, and I occupied with my own affairs. Nor was this all. A recollection of Miss Graham's sorrow came up before my eyes also, and truest of all, most penetrating to me of all the loves which seemed to encompass this rare and winsome infant, the infinite tenderness with which I once saw Mr. Ocumpaugh lift her to his breast during one of my interviews with him at Homewood. All this before the door had swung open. Afterward I saw nothing and thought of nothing but the small figure lying in the spot where I had once pillowed my own head, and with no more luxuries or even comforts about her than had been my lot under this broad but by no means hospitable roof. A bare wall, a narrow cot, a table with a bottle and glass on it, and the child in the bed, that was all. But God knows it was enough for me at that breathless moment, and advancing eagerly, I was about to stoop over the little head sunk deep in its pillow, when the old man stepped between, and with a short laugh remarked, "'There's no hurry. I have something to say first, in explanation of the anger you have seen me display, an anger which is unseemly in a man professing to have conquered the sins and passions of lost humanity.' I did follow this child. You were right in saying that it was my horse and buggy which were seen in the wake of the wagon which came from the region of Homewood and lost itself in the crossroads running between the North River and the Sound. For two days and a night I followed it, through more difficulties than I could relate in an hour, stopping in lonely woods or at wretched taverns, watching waiting for the transfer of the child, whose destination I was bound to know, even if it cost me a week of miserable travel without comfortable food or decent lodging. I could hear the child cry out from time to time, an assurance that I was not following a will-o'-the-wisp, but not till today, not till very late today, did any words pass between me and the man and woman who drove that wagon. At Fordham, just as I suspected them of making final efforts to escape me, they came to a halt, and I saw the man get out. I immediately got out, too. As we faced each other, I demanded what the matter was. He appeared reckless. "'Are you a doctor?' he asked. I assured him that I was, at which he blurted out, "'I don't know why you've been following us so long, and I don't care.' I've got a job for you. A child in our wagon is ill. 
With a start, I attempted to look over the old man's shoulder toward the bed, but the deep, if irregular, breathing of the child reassured me, and I turned to hear the doctor out. This gave me my chance. Let me see her, I cried. The man's eye lowered. I did not like his face at all. If it's anything serious, he growled, I shall cut. It isn't my flesh and blood, nor yet my old woman's here. You'll have to find some place for the brat beside my wagon, if it's anything that won't get cured without nussin'. So come along and have a look. I followed him, perfectly determined to take the child under my own care, sick or well. Where were you going to take her? I asked. I didn't ask who she was, why should I? I don't know as I'm obliged to tell, was the surly reply. Where we are going ourselves, he reluctantly added. But not to Nuss. I got no time for Nuss and Brats, nor my wife neither. We have a journey to make. Sarah, this to his wife, for by this time we were beside the wagon, lift up the flap and hold the youngster's hand out. Here's a doctor who'll tell us if it's fever or not. A puny hand and wrist were thus thrust out. I felt the pulse and held out my arms. Give me the child, I commanded. She's sick enough for a hospital. A grunt from the woman within, an oath from the man, and a bundle was presently put in my arms, from which a little moan escaped as I strode with it toward my buggy. I do not ask your name, I called back to the man, who reluctantly followed me. Mine is Dr. Poole, and I live in Yonkers. He muttered something about not peaching on a poor man who was really doing an unfortunate a kindness, and then slunk hurriedly back and was gone, wagon, wife, and all, by the time I had whipped up my tired old nag and turned about toward Yonkers. But I had the child safe and sound in my arms, and my fears of its fate were relieved. It was not well, but I anticipated nothing serious. When it moaned, I pressed it a little closer to my breast, and that was all. In three-quarters of an hour we were in Yonkers. In fifteen minutes I had it on this bed, and had begun to unroll the shawl in which it was closely wrapped. Did you ever see the child about whom there has been all this coil? Yes, about three years ago. Three years? I have seen her within a fortnight, yet I could carry that young one in my arms for a whole hour without the least suspicion that I was making a fool of myself. Quickly slipping aside, he allowed me to approach the bed and to take my first look at the sleeping child's face. It was a sweet one, but I did not need the hint he had given me to find the features strange and lacking every characteristic of those of Gwendolyn Ocumpa. Yet, as the cutting off of the hair will often change the whole aspect of the face, and this child's hair was short, I was stooping in great excitement to notice more particularly the contour of cheek and chin, which had given individuality to the little heiress, when the doctor touched me on the arm and drew my attention, to a pair of little trousers and a shirt which were hanging on the door behind me. Those are the clothes I came upon under the great shawl. The child I have been following, and whom I have brought into my house, under the impression it was Gwendolyn Ocumpa, is not even a girl. End 
of chapter 6.